with Desmond Cole on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Hey, yo. Good afternoon. I'm in a wonderful mood because I have a wonderful show for you today. I'm so excited to be with you this afternoon for the next hour. Coming up on the program, we're going to talk to a distance runner who competed in today's Scotiabank Waterfront Marathon. We're going to talk to Daniel Dale, the Toronto Star, who's been holding it down for months, covering the United States election. He's going to be joining us to have his reflections on the most unprecedented campaign I think anyone's ever seen. We're also going to talk to Lindell Smith, the 26-year-old from Halifax, who was able to win his District 8 uh, race last night for Halifax City Council. He's the first black person to be sitting on city council in that city in 16 years. And if you know anything about the history uh, of Halifax and of black folks in that part of the country, you know that that's a very, very big deal. So Lindell Smith joining us later on. I am so pumped. Desmond Cole with you. In-depth radio news talk 1010. Let's get right into it. You've probably heard by now, Mark Tui covered this last hour also, the uh, Cleveland Indians baseball team facing a lawsuit about the ability to use their name when they come to our stadium here in Ontario, in Toronto, the Blue Jays, of course. That's just the tip of a much larger conversation that's been going on about names like Indians and Braves and Blackhawks in professional sports and in amateur sports as well. Somebody who's been following this a lot is broadcaster for CBC and curator Jesse Wenty. And Jesse joins me from Toronto. Hello, sir. Hi, Desmond. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. First of all, tell me, you know, this, this conversation about mascots and logos and team names, why does this interest you so much? Uh, well, I am uh, Anishinaabe um, or Ojibwe uh, from Ontario, uh, and so my kids are as well. And, um, you know, I think... For me, I think the interest uh, starts starts there. Plus, I'm you know I'm, I'm a sports fan, particularly a baseball uh, fan. So I was very much looking forward to the Blue Jays playoff run. And when I realized that they would be facing the team from Cleveland, it just brought all of that um, this issue back to bear. And uh, and I think it was a good time to uh, start the conversation again. Now we've all heard, I think by now, about the lawsuit by Indigenous activist Douglas Cardinal who's filing a human rights complaint against the use of the names uh, Cleveland Indians. What's your response to him taking this step? I mean, he's, he, he's doing this uh, to an American team in an American-owned league. It seems bizarre to some people, but what's your reaction? Oh, I applaud uh, Douglas Cardinal's uh, step um, to file a complaint with the Human Rights Council, both in terms, both in Ontario and uh, nationally. Uh, I think this is, you know, a long time coming. And yes, it's true, um, Cleveland isn't part of Canada, but of course, uh, indigenous uh, nations uh, existed before any of the borders uh, currently deigned by the two nations that now um, occupy this land. Uh, so. You know, my people, the Ojibwe people, uh, Anishinaabe, spread throughout Canada and the U.S. So I'm not sure it's it's necessarily a, a border issue, although I understand legally that's what it will become. But I think it's, um, you know, I think this is a, a, about making a point around all of these 
mascots, all of these logos and in, in team names because they proliferate sports. It's not just at the major league level. You go to you know any of the minor league levels in, in any of the sports here mm. in Canada, and you'll find lots of these team logos and names. And I think uh, it's just time that we don't use people in this way. Uh, I don't think it's accomplishing what the people who came up with these names think that they were accomplishing. Now, um, it's more than just names. It's more than just logos. It's more than just mascots. There's a hashtag that's been trending a lot on this issue. You use it a lot, not your mascot. Mm -hmm. But this goes deeper. So, you know, for example, I remember the incredible uh, Atlanta teams of the 90s, one of the best pitching staffs around that we've ever ever seen. Atlanta calls itself the Braves. Uh, not only do they have that name and logo still, but they do a chant to this day in their stadium that involves people waving their hands back and forward. They actually call this the Tomahawk Chop. And I'm just wondering what you think the impact of continuing to use this kind of cheering as part of the sport, what's the impact of that? I, I think the impact is far greater than people think. You know, I've heard a lot this week Desmond saying it's, these are just it's just sports. It's just a team name. And part of my response is that then find and change it. But you know, for me, these mascots, these team names, represent a culture that that continues to accept discrimination against my people. And we see this at a at a really human, living life and death role. I mean, we live in a country in Canada where you know there's 92 indigenous communities that still have boil water advisories in Canada, where the life expectancy for an Indigenous person is uh, more than a decade lower than it is for anyone else, where we're incarcerated at a much higher rate, where our children can, on our, in our communities continue to be underfunded when compared to any other children in, the US, in uh, Canada, when our, our children are still in, involved in the welfare and um, children's welfare state more than any other children. These, it you sounds know, these, like what you're... This is a culture, and these are a symbol of, of all of that systemic oppression, Desmond. Yeah, exactly what I was just going to try and follow up with you on. Jesse Wente is a broadcaster and a curator here in Toronto. He's been writing and commentating a lot, advocating on this issue of team names, team mascots in professional sports and amateur sports. He's my guest right now. Jesse, I see that you interact a lot with people online about this because this subject raises the emotions of a lot of people, particularly people who are not indigenous, but who think that these names are okay. Hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you hear from people who try to tell you that maybe you shouldn't be so upset about these kinds of names and mascots and logos and chants, etc.? Yeah, I hear a variety of things, but they all they all tend to hit a couple of marks. You know, one is the conversation around tradition that, you know, for example, the Cleveland Indians name has been around since 1914 and that that is uh, is true. Um but of course, you know, A, I think that's it's a tradition it's a different tradition that those mascots honor, and that's uh, colonialism and discrimination. I think that's the tradition they honor more than um, the Indian's name. And, of course, I would also point out that um, while that is true, if we look at the true history of this land, you know, my people have been on the land where I'm speaking to you from for 13,000 years. So in terms of weighing traditions over one and the other, um, I, I think there's, uh, we need to have some historical context here. I also hear... Um, you know, that there are bigger issues, and that is so true, Desmond. Yeah. I just listed, there are so many bigger issues, but this issue, 
you know, how are we to expect those larger issues to actually be solved if we can't even have these baseline discrimination moments, this, this very plain, blatant racism um, gone from our culture? It, it is really hard for us to get over and have those more substantive conversations or believe that this country is prepared for true reconciliation when it continues to accept these sorts of false depictions, which ultimately just lead to the same cycle over and over again. And it's a cycle we have to break. Now, speaking of history and historical context, Jesse, um, I remember learning really late in life about the Boston Tea Party in the United States, that very famous revolt against the British by who are now the Americans. And during that Tea Party, a lot of the people who were participating actually dressed up wearing feathers and face paint. You know, we talk about appropriation, cultural appropriation. Why do Americans like to adopt these names? Why do they call their helicopters Apache? Why do they use these names of indigenous culture in their popular culture? You know, I, I think it's something, again, that becomes uh, a, a symptom, but also ultimately then a tool of sort of colonial ideology. So they take, they take from a culture what they want. And I think for indigenous people, they take notions of bravery, of warrior spirit, of nobility, again, all of which are, large, are constructs, you know, uh, they're constructs of, of the mythology of this land, of manifest destiny, which is a, a myth that America, and quite frankly, Canada also tends to tell itself to ease the pain of, of the original sin of, of both these countries, which is you know, the theft of the land and, and the attempted genocide of indigenous people and then the forced slavery of um, Africans. You know, uh, so I think, they're, I think they take what they want and they put those on the logos in an attempt, I think, to honor. But, of course, the key point for a lot of these logos, Cleveland especially, you know, they were at a time when it was illegal for indigenous people to practice their customs in both the U.S. and Canada. We had, in Canada, we had something called the potlatch ban, which made our religious ceremonies, our dances, our stories illegal to practice. Our children were being taken away to residential school. We were being forcibly removed from our traditional lands. And so the, I, the notion that they, they, they do this to honor us is, of course, a complete fallacy. That's what they're truly truly honoring. But I think it's a cycle that blinds, you know, colonialism has this ability to blind everyone. Not only did it rob me of my culture, my language, my land, but it, it robbed everyone else of all of those things too. And when we're stuck in now in a place where we're trying to reconcile and we've lost so much, uh, you know, we need to go so far that it seems insurmountable. But these are, re this mascots are just the low-hanging fruit. And we do have to you know, uh, I agree. We do have to move on, but, yeah. but we have to solve this first. I got 10 seconds, and yeah. I just want to ask you before you go, Jesse, how do you still enjoy the game of baseball as you do when you're simultaneously fighting on this issue and others? I've really been struggling to enjoy the last two games, Desmond. I have to be honest. Well, the last um, two games were horrible. It's been really tough to watch and listen because the name is, despite the best efforts of some broadcasters, it's still very present. So um, I actually haven't been watching as I had hoped with mm. my kids uh, or listening. And I'm hoping the Jays will win four straight real quick and we can move on to the next series. Jesse, we got to move on too, but I want to thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much, Desmond McWitch. Jesse Wente, curator, broadcaster here in Toronto, dropping some knowledge on us to begin the show. When we come back, Lindell Smith, newly elected in Halifax District 8, is going to join us on the program. It's Desmond Cole. It's In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. 
listening to Desmond Cole on News Talk 1010. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm real, real, real jazzed right now. This summer, I had the privilege of being in Halifax. And, you know, I was uh, working on a couple of things down there. I'm writing a book, as some of you may know, with Doubleday Canada about the experiences of black Canadians. And so I was doing some research down there and I was working on a documentary. And I happened to meet a young man by the name of Lindell Smith, who told me at the time that he was running for city council in Halifax District 8. Lindell is 26 years old. He's African Nova Scotian. We had a little chat. I did a little interview with him. I wished him the best. And I woke up this morning to find out that he won in District 8. Not only did Lindell Smith win, he took more than 50% of the vote. It was a decisive victory for the 26-year-old who joins me on the line from Halifax. Hello. Yo, we made it. Yes. <laughs> I am very, very excited to welcome you to this program, Lindell Smith. Oh, How you doing? Thank you so much. I'm, I'm great. I'm, I'm overwhelmed, still kind of kicking in, but it's, it's, it's great. It's a great feeling. Truly blessed. So... I read about this win in Metro News last night. I saw the pictures of you holding your daughter mm -hmm. with your family members. Yeah. Can you tell me what it was like last night as the election results started to roll in and you were watching with everybody that you've been building with for this? It, you know, it was, it was surreal. Uh, I was being very conservative in terms of uh, what the numbers that were coming in were at every poll that was coming in, every table that was coming in, we were, we, we had most of the votes and, you know, I was looking at it as a way, okay, maybe we're going to lose a table here. And, and we kept winning a table and we kept winning this table. And it got to the point where it was, it was, I was starting to get calls from the other candidates saying, you know what, congratulations. And they still didn't think in at that point. And so, uh, CBC kind of called, called the election to say, you got it. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, now, you are being talked about a lot in the write-ups that are going around as being the first black city councillor in Halifax in the last 16 years. Yes. As a black Nova Scotian with a long ancestry in this part of the country, what does this mean to you? Uh, it means so much for our people. Uh, it just means that now we have that confidence in that, that feeling of hope, because for too long we didn't have anyone at the leadership table. We didn't have anyone that people really felt um, really wanted to fight for their grassroots issues. We have a lot of great leaders in the communities, but uh, there's not enough in leadership roles. And for me to be able to say I'm a city councillor who actually helps run area, but also runs the city, but also being a young black male who's, who's dealt with, you name it, um, in I've seen it in be, being able to, to have the confidence of residents and, and political folk is kind of a, it's, it's a surreal feeling, but it's a good feeling because now we can put some of the issues forward that we've been talking about for a long time on council. Yeah, let's get to some of those issues. In District 8 where you live, what were you talking about that you believe really swayed people and made them believe, you know what, this guy's got it, he understands the issues in the community? What were you raising? Most, most of it was really, really giving people the opportunity to, to let me know what issues they feel they, feel they face, but really it, it was saying we need to see change, we need to have new voices, 
Um, and we need to have someone at the table who understands our dynamic in diverse communities. And I've worked in a lot in the African Nova Scotia, but I also worked in many other communities with residents trying to build relationships, trying to to go against the government and trying to do as many things we can to do to, to put us on a, on a pedestal. But when, no matter what area I went to, and this is, this, this is a predominantly white uh, community in, in province, uh, every, every district I went to, every area, people were, were happy to see something new, but also looking at my track record of work, they were, they said, okay, you, you definitely need to do this. That's what do we need to do now? <laughs> Lindell Smith is the counselor-elect in District 8, Peninsula North in Halifax. He got the news last night, uh, watching with his family and friends and campaign team. Uh, Lindell, when we talk about your experience, you have been working at uh, a library in Halifax as a community library assistant. Right. I remember when I met you, I asked you about that role, and I want to ask you now that you've won the same question that I asked you back then, which was, now that you've won, how do you think that that experience working in a library is going to translate over to being a city councilor? It's the people. Like when you are in, when you are serving the public in any type of of of, of, of area, especially in a library in a community that I grew up in. So it's you have a mixture of people with addictions, people with modest incomes, people with with high incomes, low incomes, and everyone comes to the the library because that's kind of the community hub in that area. So I was I, I for the past five years I've been able to mix with all of these different folks and learn about the things that they're they're talking about, but more importantly, really getting getting confidence of all these folks from these different communities. And uh, with saying that, the library gave me the experience to just be able to speak to residents because at the end of the day, as a counselor, you serve the residents, mm. but also having the experience to know how to deal with certain situations because I also was a supervisor so I, 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 I managed staff as well so having that having that experience as well kind of kind of will, will give me that that needed experience to kind of say hey I'm 26 but I got I got what you need <laughs> and real quick Lindell before we let you go the pictures of you with your daughter uh, Jataya who's seven years old are so beautiful. Mm-hmm. What's it been like for you to campaign while having that responsibility as a dad? Um, it's you know what she's the biggest supporter. Um, it's she's all the all the way. She was asking questions, which made me think how I actually ran my campaign. Because you know you you assume that somebody knows what a council is. You assume somebody knows what a district is. You assume people know how the council works. But having her and her being so curious about what I was doing. I really had to think about what I wanted to do. And she said, why do you want to do this? And I had to really formulate why I wanted to do this. And she kind of gave me those moments of, you know what, let me really think about what I want to do, how I want to do it. And she was, she was working the magic at her school, too, making sure all the friends had buttons and stuff, <laughs> taking them out of my bag and, and putting them in her friend's bag. So she, she was definitely the biggest supporter. I hope that you and her and the rest of your family are savoring this day. And congratulations and best of luck to you on Halifax City Council. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for, for allowing me to share. And you take care. You too, brother. Take care. All right. See you. Lindell Smith from Halifax. That is sweet. I'm very, very happy for that young man. Some of you may know that I ran for office back in the day when I was only 24. I didn't win. So it's really lovely to see somebody young and black and ambitious to get there.
When we come back, Daniel Dale has been diligently following the wackiest election that has ever happened anywhere, and he's going to tell us about it. Daniel Dale, foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star, is my guest next. You're with Desmond Cole, In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Conversation continues with Desmond Cole on News Talk 1010. Yes. Currently 20 degrees in the city of Toronto. Rainy. Continues to be rainy over the next couple of days. But you know the actual temperature still in the 20s from what is now late October. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I am very, very pleased right now to be joined on the line by somebody whose work I've been following for years, but... In particular, I've been following him quite a lot over the last several months as he co- covers the United States election, which really is at beyond, it's beyond description at this point. Let's see how he does. He's the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. He's a good friend of the show. It's Daniel Dale. Hello. Hey, Desmond. How are you doing? I'm real well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You're, from, you're in Washington right now, are you? Yes, I am. This opportunity of covering the U.S. election, though, has sent you a lot of different places in the country, hasn't it? Yeah, I just, just uh, yesterday got home from a road trip. I, was, I drove from D.C. to Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and then very briefly in Florida. So, yeah, I've been talking to a lot of people and seeing a lot of interesting things. Daniel, you've been doing something really interesting, which is... You've been day by day tracking the number of, shall we call them, falsehoods that uh, Republican nominee Donald Trump has been making as he campaigns every day. And apparently today, according to you, he hit a record, but he didn't hit a record for falsehoods. He only hit a record for falsehoods in a non-debate day, because I guess on (laughs) debate day, he has a lot more opportunity to say things. So what's the record? And tell us about some of the details today. Well, I, I counted 25 false claims. You know, some people say call them lies. I don't know if they're all lies. Some of them might be inadvertent inaccuracies. But yeah, 25 was the most I've counted since I've been doing this for uh, several weeks. In the two debates, he had 33 and 34, respectively, uh, which is, it, it's, I mean, it's all pretty astonishing. Um, and they range from, from very little things to, to big things. So, you know, among the bigger ones today was he... He made up a claim that Barack Obama has released tens of thousands of drug dealers uh, early from prison. Um, Obama, in, in all his years in office, has commuted the sentences of 775 people, not all of whom are drug dealers. Um, so some of, some of it is, is, you know, making up facts out of thin air. Um, you know, he claimed on the subject of crime as well that the, the number of murders in the U.S. is at the highest level uh, than uh, the highest level in 45 years, um, when it's you know among the lowest number uh, we've seen in those last 45 years. So he's he's every single day um, he's he's making stuff up, and we've just never seen anything like this. Daniel, you say we've never seen anything like it, but you covered Mayor Rob Ford for several years in this city, and a lot of people have been asking me if I could ask you. Did your time covering Rob Ford, who also was known to have a loose relationship with the truth, shall we say, yeah. how has that prepared you for what you're doing now? Yeah, I think it, it prepared me a lot. I mean, first of all, it prepared me um, to be aggressive in calling out untruths, lies, falsehoods, whatever whatever you want to call them. Um, 
you know, for a lot of the media, this is not something that they are accustomed to. You know, there's a tradition of, of uh, you know, the, the so-called he said, she said kind of uh, so-called objectivity where you, you present the claim, you say what one side said about it, you say what the other side said about it, and you don't, you know, sort of insert yourself in the middle of this, this political dialogue and say, actually, you know, one side is right here. But what we learned, I think, during the four years was that, that the old model is just not sufficient when you have a candidate who is repeatedly making stuff up. Um, and that was the case with Ford, and, and that's certainly the case with Trump. Daniel Dale is the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. He's joining us on the line from Washington. Daniel, I wonder if in all of this, and you've done a lot of coverage about what Trump says day to day, but of course, Trump's main opponent and the person leading in the polls right now is Democratic uh, uh, candidate Hillary Clinton. What's the danger of allowing somebody like uh, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Clinton, to have a bit of a free ride because of the outlandish nature of the Trump campaign? Well, I think there, I think there is a danger. I mean, there's a, a large segment of the the pro Clinton following on Twitter um, and other elsewhere on social media that gets angry anytime there's even benign criticism or correction of of Clinton. They say, well, you know, they scoff and they say, well, how does you know how does that compare to sexually assaulting ten women? You know, as, as Trump has been accused of doing. Um, so I think the the imbalance in these two candidates, you know, where Trump is making things up all the time, attracting media attention, um, does allow Clinton to get away with. Uh, at least a little bit more than she would in a in a normal election. So I think we we in the media have to make sure that um, you know we don't we don't just allow that to happen. I don't accept that you know pointing out Clinton's you know hypocrisies or untruths or whatever uh, is is tantamount to in supporting or certainly not endorsing Trump. Um, you know, especially since she is likely to be the president, she needs to be challenged as well. Now. Um... <laughs> In the course of you doing this, I see that you get a lot of online responses from people who sometimes don't like how you say, sometimes you are kind enough to share some of the funnier ones with us, but yeah. it's actually got to kind of wear on you, I imagine. I get some hate mail myself as a journalist, and I imagine that sometimes that can't be the most fun thing to deal with either. Yeah, it's not. I mean, some of them, some of the hate mail is like so comical that you can't help but laugh, which is nice. Some of it is, is just... Uh, it's homophobic, it's anti-Semitic, it's just vile, disgusting stuff. Um, so I've really uh, I've become a, a frequent blocker of people on Twitter, uh, much more than I ever did in four days. And, you know, I figured out how you can configure uh, the email thing on Outlook so that certain people's emails automatically get sent to the, the trash folder. So that's how I've... Uh, that's how I've uh, maintained my, my sanity to some extent during this campaign. For sure. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Daniel, is... We hear Trump in recent days as he becomes more and more embroiled in allegations of sexual assault, allegations that he himself seemed to have suggested before anyone else came out and confirmed them, that um, he is now telling his supporters that the election, in his words, is rigged. And he keeps Mm. saying this over and over as if to suggest that if he loses, as the polls indicate he would at this point, that Mm. it wouldn't be because of anything fair would be because of foul play by either the Clinton campaign or Mm -hmm. someone else. What do you think? This is, this is pretty unprecedented stuff for uh, one of the two major candidates. What do you think the impact of him saying the election is rigged is on the actual outcome? 
Well, I think there, there are two dangers. One is, is there's, a, there's a physical, you know, literal danger. Um, you, don't, you know, it only takes a, a few people um, angrily reacting to what they think is, is uh, you know, democratic thievery um, to really cause a problem. Uh, you know, we saw uh, people arrested for allegedly planning an anti-Muslim terrorist attack. Um, you know, if Trump loses, will, will his rhetoric uh, cause some of his supporters who feel aggrieved because of it to, you know, to try to take matters into their own hands in some way. Mm. Um, we, we don't know. I think that, and it's 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 a real, that's a real question. I think the other danger is to America is a democracy. You know, what what makes a democracy function is the the peaceful transition of power. You know, people they, they accept the election result and they 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 move on. And when you have a candidate who has a very devoted following who is signaled that he's not prepared to move on, he's prepared to suggest that it was stolen from him. Um, it's a real threat to people's, you know, belief in the institutions that make, make the country run. Um, so it's, I think it's a, it's a truly dangerous thing. It's a truly, a truly scary time in, in America. Well, you've been doing excellent work covering it, Daniel. And when you're home, I hope you'll join us in studio to break down what has been the most incredible election I've ever seen. Thank you yeah, so much thanks. for yeah. Thanks for your work and stay safe out there. Thanks, Desmond. Bye bye. Okay, bye, Daniel Dale, Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. Some election, I don't know what to say. When we come back, distance runner Erin Barrett, who participated in today's Scotiabank Waterfront Marathon, is going to join us to talk about her experience. Keep it locked here with your Desmond Cole on in-depth radio news talk ten ten. Desmond Cole is on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Yeah, I sure am. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for sticking with us. You know, if you would ever like to catch up on an old episode of this program, hear the sound of my voice once again. How could you resist that? How? How, I ask you? Just go to Newstalk1010.com. And we've got a list of all of our shows and hosts, and you can find a podcast there for every single episode of this show. Moving right along, but having a lot of fun on the air today, you know, whenever there is an event like today, the Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon, we get a lot of conversation about traffic. It seems that we are really good in this city at turning every single thing into a vector for how it affects traffic and whether or not we can get where we're going quickly enough. But some other people were trying to get somewhere very quickly today and it's to the finish line because they were running in that marathon. And I thought to give you a perspective of what that experience is like, we would talk to somebody who participated today. Her name is Erin Barrett. She's from Nanaimo, BC. She is an elite marathon runner in this country, as she's been running for several years, has a really incredible personal best time in the marathon of 2 minutes 39 and 17 seconds from last year. Unfortunately, though, this year, Erin didn't finish the race. I saw her tweeting about it, and I thought that we would have her on the program to talk about the experience, and she joins us from her hotel. Hello, Erin. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. Are you really? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was ready for a nap, but uh, <laughs> I'm hanging in there. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, first of all, just tell us a little bit about competing in today's Scotiabank Marathon. Um, 
Well, first off, I want to say actually my personal best is 237.48 from Rotterdam in April. Ooh. Yeah. My bad. That's, that's ideally I was, I was going for that, um, to beat that today. I was hoping for a sub 235. Um, it's a great event, but today was a little humid. Um, it was on the warm side for a marathon. Um, and it, uh, you know, it just didn't play out the way I was hoping today. I'm so sorry to hear that. I know how much training and preparation goes into an event like this. What have you been doing in the lead up to this marathon in order to get yourself ready? You know, generally, I guess my weeks would entail um, a couple days, two to three days where I'd run twice in a day. Um, you know, once in the morning and once in the evening, you know, two workouts a week, uh, a long run a week. Generally, I don't take a day off. My day off is um, an hour easy, so it's about 14K that I would just run easy. Easy 14K. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so upwards of, you know, I was covering, you know, 90 miles a week or so, so, um, you know, 150K or more. Um, and in the few weeks leading up to this, I actually went to Flagstaff, Arizona for some altitude training. Uh, so that's like what I normally do before my marathons is it gives me some time to run and hurt at 7,000 feet. And then I come back to sea level where it's supposed to feel a lot easier. Mm. Now you say you've been running competitively since you were eight years old. What is it that first drew you to this sport? Um, it's hard to remember back then. Yeah, I did compete in school from ages eight to 18. I, um, just started out with with the school sports, and then the local track club approached me and said that, you know, I should join the club, and so I did, and I was just a natural runner. I um, had a lot of success as a kid, um, continued until, unfortunately, when puberty hit as a girl, it's not very nice on you when it comes to sports, so I had a bit of a, a downfall at that point, and then after high school, I was a bit burnt out from the 10 years that I had done it, so I actually stepped I stepped back from the sport for actually quite a few years. Um, I didn't fully step away. I still ran, you know, when I felt like it and did some races here and there, but I wasn't fully training. And then in uh, 2000, late 2008, I actually, like, really got back into it and have been building ever since then. Erin Barrett is my guest. She's from Nanaimo, B.C., and she competed in today's Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon. Erin, uh... On race day, you know, running a marathon, being out there for two and a half plus hours, uh, it can, I imagine how grueling it can be. What goes through your mind when you're competing in a race, or are you trying really hard to clear your mind? Um, usually I try and clear my mind. Um, 42K is a long way to go if you're, if you're thinking too much, so, you know, I try and not, not focus on my watch too much. I had a they offered a pacer for me today. Unfortunately, I couldn't keep the pace that I wanted to, but he still, he worked with me trying to encourage me to keep going. And uh, um, usually I, I just try and zone out, um, look down occasionally at the watch just to see like what pace I'm on. And other than that, it's just clicking off, trying not to pay attention to the, the kilometer markers going by. And, um, you know, when you're finished a race like this, 
what I mean, it does it does everything kind of just come flooding back in all of a sudden after all of that focus and concentration? I mean, today was only my third attempt at the marathon, so I'm still rather new at it actually. Um, the first two I did, it was very, you know, I, I raced Victoria uh, last October as my debut and was able to win. So that was just like a whirlwind of, you know, doing my debut in two, 2.39, which I, I didn't expect to go that fast. And, and to also win it was huge. So that was a, you know, a real highlight. In Rotterdam, it was a bit different. I I still ran the best time, but I dealt, dealt with some really nasty blisters on my feet for the final 27k um so that was more being proud that i actually stuck through it and you know didn't give up um yeah it's it it, i mean you feel 42k it 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 does take a toll on your body and it's always nice to reach that finish line and know that you're done yeah and injuries are just part of the game are they not i mean i see here in your bio that many years you've dealt at one time or another with different injuries yeah, in the last, especially in the last three years, I've had um, three injuries because you're always you're always towing that that fine line because you want to improve, you want to run the best you can, so you're you're doing everything possible. So it's a fine line where you sometimes cross over that line, and then you end up injured. So it's I'm slowly, you know, at, I'll be 35 years old tomorrow, actually, and uh, happy be- or happy uh, happy birthday in advance, I should say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm still learning, and I'm still learning to, you know, to I have to listen to my body. So, you know, I, the last three injuries I did get in trouble from, you know, having a little niggle and not really, not really listening to it, letting it go on too long, and then it would become major. So, mm. it's it's, a, it's definitely a fine line. Now you didn't finish today's race, and I know that's disappointing for you. But what motivates you to keep going after? a day like today when you didn't exactly reach what you wanted to? You know, I'm, I'm competitive in nature. The, the success I had a kid, as a kid keeps me going. But, you know, and I also want to make the national team for, for future events. You know, Athletics Canada just released our world marathon standards, which has been a big news topic because two years ago it was uh, the women's standard was 235. And they just, um, the standards were released by the IAAF back in March. And Athletics Canada waited until four days before this race, which was the national championship, and where six of us were going after standards Mm. to release it. And they released it being two standards, which was the A standard uh, being 229.50, which was actually the same as the Olympic standard. Wow. Um, And then they released a B standard um, of, 231.30, but it was with you may or may not be selected if you run the B standard. It's kind of, you know, optional by the the head coach if if they want to take you or not. But these are milestones that keep you going. Yeah, these, you know, these standards definitely motivate me to keep going and keep improving. And, you know, I've only done, I guess, two and just over two and a half, you know, marathons now. So, I know there's more in my legs, and I can't wait to see how fast I can get. Aaron, we are out of racetrack, if you will, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Congratulations. Aaron Barrett, distance runner from Nanaimo, BC, telling us a little bit about the experience of a marathon. I really have to go. Pushed it to the limit today with a great show. Tony Tedesco, producer of the program. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mike Trutler on the big board, making all of the guests and myself sound wonderful, of course. Thank you to all of you for listening. 
Seven days from now, we will do it again. Until then, keep it locked. Desmond Cole, In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.